Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 14, continuing our study in uh, the writings of Samuel. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, Yahweh's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we ask you to grant us your Holy Spirit so that we might understand it clearly today, that in these events, you can show us your grace and your mercy and your redemption of your people in spite of the wickedness of uh, your servant Saul. We pray that we uh, would be convicted and tested and and challenged uh, in this. So, Father, guide us and deliver me from all error. Deliver us all from distraction. And may we hear your voice through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, I'm sure you've heard the term Pyrrhic victory. You've heard that term somewhere. It's, It's how you describe a situation where you have technically won... It's technically a victory, but that victory comes at such a great expense that it feels like a loss. The the effort has taken such a toll on you that the results of the win feel like a failure. Uh, The the term is a reference to uh, the great king Pyrrhus. Uh, He was a Greek who defeated the Romans at the Battle of Heracles in uh, 280 B.C., Um, And in the process of beating the Romans, this king suffered an immense loss. He lost practically his entire army. He lost all of his commanders. He lost all of his friends. So he beat the Romans on that day. But at what cost? At at what cost did he win? And so we uh, have since then talked about Pyrrhic victory. So a Pyrrhic victory is a hollow victory. There's great sadness and there's great loss in the success Sort of like when I play Monopoly with my family. I win, of course. Don't give me, we, I always win. That's never in doubt. But it doesn't feel good to win, you know, to lay waste to your family and uh, to beat them that way. Everybody's upset. And I have to remind them, the name of the game isn't make nine-year-olds happy. The name of the game is Monopoly. And we have to remember that. And rem- have to remember how good dad is at this. So... Everybody's upset and it feels hollow when I win. That's trivial, of course. But the events we see in 1 Samuel 14 this morning are not trivial, and they show us another very hollow victory, a victory that leaves a bad taste in our mouth, a victory that's not going to leave us satisfied. Israel is going to win today, sort of, but at what cost? What is happening to the spiritual and the moral fiber of the people as Saul becomes increasingly narcissistic and mad? What, the, the opening verses waste no time, and we're going to dive right into it. Here are the leaders, as I just read. Here is the place. Here is the plan. Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, 
turns to his armor bearer, takes him aside, and he says, come with me as we go attack the Philistines. Jonathan is once again on the move, taking initiative against the Philistines, just as we saw him do last week. And we get that little wink at the end of the sentence, but he did not tell his father. Why doesn't Jonathan tell his father where he's going? Is it easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? Probably. But his father is weak. His father has lost his courage. His father has lost his heart. There was a time where Saul displayed great courage when Nahash the Ammonite came to terrorize God's people. Saul was the mighty bridegroom who kept the serpent out of the garden and protected the bride. But now, as we read in the previous chapter, something has been sucked out of him. He's not that man anymore. Something's changed, and now he has let the Philistines run roughshod over Israel. And the people of Israel, we read at the end of last chapter, the people of Israel are hiding in caves, they're hiding in pits, and they're being terrified and terrorized by the Philistines. Now, we're set up with this dramatic contrast. Jonathan is courageous. Saul is cowardly. Jonathan is on the attack. Saul is sitting. Jonathan is practically replacing his father as the commander of Israel right before our eyes. Jonathan is going to go start another battle. And Saul is going to show up just in time to mess it up. Now, Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree, we read. And remember that the, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste ink. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. Whenever we get details, they're critical details. They're important details to the text. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree with Ahijah, Right? Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, who was the brother of Ichabod, and also the 600 men that he still has left after the uh, previous debacle in the last chapter. He's got 600 men left out of 2,000 that were with him, and there was another 1,000 with Jonathan. Well, this scene of Saul sitting under a pomegranate tree with uh, the descendant of Eli, this, this scene is pregnant with imagery. With Ahijah there, we remember instantly the defeat at Aphek back in chapter 4. Remember when the priests Hophni and Phinehas died, when the ark was captured, where Eli fell off of his chair uh, backwards and broke his neck, and the ark of the covenant was captured, and Ichabod's mother went into labor when she hears all of this terrible news? This, this comes rushing back when this family is mentioned once again. All this comes rushing forward, and we, we recall the situation. Why was the Ark of the Covenant on the battlefield to begin with? Well, there was a lot of overconfidence there. There was a lot of arrogance there. There was a lot of disobedience and impatience there. Uh, impatience there. And all of this comes back when we read that this family's hanging out with Saul again. And we remember, oh yeah, Saul has been impatient and overconfident and arrogant. And all of this uh, is, is right here before us. And before this chapter is over, we're going to drag the Ark of the Covenant out again into the field of battle. Um, Ahijah, Ahijah, rather, Ahitub is his father. Ahijah is wearing the ephod. That's the breastplate of judgment with those stones, Urim and Thummim. And, and the, the high priest is there in an official capacity. They're sitting under a pomegranate tree. Pomegranates are featured heavily. When you read the design of the priestly robes, there are pomegranates everywhere. There are pomegranates in the, woven into the decoration and, and the stitching and everything, the, 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 the 
Pomegranate is a design feature of the priest's robes, and pomegranates are also prominent in temple architecture. Jeremiah describes the, the temple when it's about to come down, and he says that there were a hundred pomegranates around the, the, uh, the trim of the, of the roof of the temple. Uh, pomegranates are everywhere in priestly and in temple design and in, in the architecture. Well, here is, here is Saul surrounded by priests and surrounded by pomegranates. Saul has already pretended to be a priest in the last chapter. Remember when he offered sacrifices and didn't wait for Samuel to show up? Saul's a king. He's not supposed to offer sacrifices. You're supposed to wait for the priest. Saul went ahead and he pretended to be a priest. Before this chapter is over, Saul is once again going to pretend to be a priest. He's going to build an altar. He's going to approach his son as if he's the prophet of the Lord. Uh, this is all going to come up again. So here is Saul surrounded by pomegranates uh, with priests. It's like, it's like he wants to be a priest. He's got this identity crisis and he wants to act like a priest and be, uh, be associated with them, but he's not one. He just needs to be a good king. He just needs to do his job. Don't try to do this other job. Just do the job you're given. Uh, pomegranates are also one of the symbols of bounty and blessing that God gave his people when he brought them into the land of promise. When the spies came back from Canaan, uh, Canaan we always remember they, they had a bunch of grapes uh, between them carrying it on a pole, right? But that's not all they had. They, they, in addition to grapes, they had figs and they had pomegranates. These were symbols of the bounty and the fertility of the land that God was giving them. And later on, when God's judgment falls on Israel and Judah, we read in Joel and we read in Haggai, the vine withers, the figs dry up, and the pomegranate tree dies. These, these are also symbols when God withdraws his blessing. These are the things that, that go away. So in this chapter, when, when, before we get to the end, I'm setting you up here. I want you to remember these things. Before we get to the end, we're going to recall the promises that God made to his people about this land flowing with milk and honey. In chapter 14, the land is literally flowing with honey. The people come on uh, upon pools of honey before this chapter is over with. And Saul is going to have another colossal lapse in judgment regarding the provision of the land. And he does this all while he sits under a pomegranate tree. He should be distributing pomegranates in a manner of speaking. He should be uh, blessing God's people with the blessings of the land, feeding them with the bounties of the Lord's table, giving them benefits. Instead, before this chapter is out, we're going to see Saul withhold the blessings of the land, intentionally, deliberately withholding the benefits and blessings of the land of promise. Uh, Samuel um, had, had told uh, the family, though, and, and Samuel had told Saul that, that you will save the people from the hand of the Philistines. And Jonathan believed this promise. Jonathan believed this calling. And Jonathan took it seriously. He thought, this is my family's mission. We're here to dispatch the Philistines. And so we're going to do it boldly. We're going to know that God is with us and God is going to give us the victory if we're faithful to do what he tells us to do. So Jonathan now takes the initiative while his father is sitting under a tree hanging out with the with the priests. Uh, there's a little adventure here where Jonathan makes up his mind to approach the Philistine camp. He's on the one side of a ravine, a deep, sharp ravine, 
uh, with teeth. Uh, verse four uses the word teeth. Uh, it's, like, it's like this mouth of a, of a creature, almost, a, a mouth of a, a devourer. Uh, this is so rocky. The ravine uh, is separating the Israelite camp from the Philistine camp. And Jonathan uh, is going to get to the other side. And in order for him to get to the other side, he's got to climb down the rocks on one side and climb up the rocks on the other side. And from the description, we're going to get the sense that Jonathan is a pretty skilled rock climber. He's pretty nimble. And even the Philistines are going to be shocked by his skill. But the two sides of this ravine have names. You know how you name the sides of the banks of a river, right? You know how when you walk, you say, oh, that, that uh, piece of my yard is called you know, green, and that piece of my yard is called brown. We, name, we don't do that, but they did. They had names for these various things, and the name of the one side was Sina, or Thorny, and the name of the other cliff side was Bozes, or Shining. Thorny and Shining. Thorny bushes and Shining. Shiny, shiny bramble bush. When have we seen a shining bramble bush before? Well, we saw a burning bush with Moses. When Moses is commissioned to go deliver God's people from Egypt, he sees a burning bush. Here is Jonathan's burning bush event as he's about to deliver God's people from the Philistines. This scene also is going to look kind of like a death and a resurrection for Jonathan. He's going to go down the thorny way into the valley, and he comes up again by the shiny way. Going to go down through the curse and go up toward the victory, go down in death and up in glory. And this is kind of like Jonathan is, is going to go through this valley and come out like a dead and risen warrior. And his victory is going to inspire the Israelites who are where? Where are the Israelites hiding out? In graves, right? Practically, they're hiding in caves and pits. And he, as the dead and risen warrior, taking the initiative against the Philistines, is going to inspire his brethren to come out of their graves and go fight the Philistines uh, and to, to, to go take on the battle as well. So let's see. Let's watch how brave and courageous Jonathan does this. Verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Um, that's something that uh, David, he's always going to call the Philistines the uncircumcised. I wonder where he learned that. He learned it from Jonathan. It may be that Yahweh will work for us, for nothing restrains Yahweh from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go thou, here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up for Yahweh has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden. They're coming out of their graves. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come after me for Yahweh has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. 
Uh, as he's about to make this crossing, Jonathan makes a great profession of faith. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that Yahweh will work for us. For nothing restrains Yahweh from saving by many or by few. I really love that word may be and everything that is packed into it. I love the spirit of Jonathan here. That's not a sign of weak faith to put yourself into a situation and say, here I am, Lord, are you going to use this or not? Lord, you are not beholden to me. Lord, you're not obligated to bless my plans. Lord, you don't have to like what I'm doing here, but show me. It may be that the Lord will bless this. It may be that he won't. There's some folks, and you hear this from time to time, that, 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 that faith, a bold faith, uh, would, would pray something more like this. Let's go over there because God will absolutely kick their tails. And that's absolutely what God is going to do. But, but faith doesn't dictate things to God. Faith doesn't uh, tell God what he's going to do. Faith asks of God what he might do with the situation that we give to him. So Jonathan, he, he exhibits an incredibly mature faith here. And what this shows when Jonathan says, the Lord may deliver us, maybe he wants to use this. What is, what is Jonathan doing? Jonathan is waiting on the Lord. And this is something his father doesn't do. His father doesn't wait. His father's an impatient man, as we saw in the last chapter. And he's going to grow more and more impatient. Saul's big problem is he doesn't wait on anybody because he's so consumed with himself. But Jonathan waits. They go to the ravine, and as he's about to cross, he, he tells his armor bearer, we're going to do a little experiment. We're going to yell to the Philistines across the way, and we're going to show them that we're over here. And if they say, hey, stay right there, well, we're going to stay over here. But if they say, hey, come on over here, well, we're going to go over and we're going to see uh, the sign of we're going to ask the Lord to show us what we're supposed to do. And, uh, and this is how we're going to determine the will of the Lord. Sure enough, Jonathan and his armor bearer get to the top of the ravine. They call over to the Philistine camp on the other side and say, hey, ugly, uncircumcised, pagans, we're over here. And the Philistines holler back and they say, hey, Hebrews, come over here. We want to show you something. You know, we got this club here with spikes coming out of it. We want to show you this. And uh, it must have been almost mockingly as if, yeah, right. This boy and this armor bearer, this, I mean, Jonathan may have been almost 40 by then, but uh, this, this guy is going to come climb this, this craggy, uh, nasty ravine to get over here. We're safe. We're good. It'll be really funny to watch him fall down there and break his neck. Uh, we ain't doing anything today. That'll be good entertainment for the afternoon. But, uh, but we're going we're gonna to see what happens. Uh, so they're mocking Jonathan as if it were impossible. But Jonathan's skill is evident as he nimbly climbs down one side, climbs up the other. And by the time that he's at the top of the second, the, the second cliff, he's got his sword out. And he and his armor bearer kill 20 men in half an acre of land. How big is your yard? You've got about a half an acre. Some of you have lots more. Some of you have, a, you know, what about 20 guys litter that area of land by the time Jonathan is done. Jonathan crossing this ravine and killing these 20 guys is going to make him seem almost superhuman to the Philistines. And it's going to add to their fear and to their confusion. For a fun exercise, go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel and make a list of everything that the Philistines have seen and heard and experienced every time they mess with the Hebrews. And you see, well, we've had tumors, we've had rats, 
we've had lice. Our, our God has fallen off uh, his pedestal twice. Uh, we have this weird thunder. Um, we, we over and over and over, we see weird and crazy things every time we have anything to do with these Hebrews. And now we've got this weird monkey boy that just climbs down this way and climbs up the other. And he's got 20 of us killed before we can even get our sword out of our scabbard. What is going on here? And just to add, just to punctuate this, the Lord blesses Jonathan's bravery by sending an earthquake just as soon as he gets over to the other side. Let's pick up there. But you see, the Philistines are disturbed. They're unsettled. Their uh, bowels turn to water when they see Jonathan clamber up there and kill 20 men with just in a, a, a half acre of land. Verse, um, where are we? Verse 15. Uh, and there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who is gone from us. And when they called the roll, surprisingly... Not surprisingly to us, surprisingly to Saul, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened when Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews, who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel, who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So Yahweh saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. So Saul is lounging beneath his tree, and he sees across the way, across the field of battle, in the distance, that the camp of the Philistines is starting to dissolve. And there's a lot of noise, and there's a lot of clamor. And Saul asks, what is going on over there? Who's missing? Who's not with us right now? We got to take roll call. Who is over there? Is anybody missing? And of course, Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone. Saul is being shown up once again by his son. As later, Saul is going to be shown up by his uh, adopted son or his son-in-law, David. Uh, so Saul does the only thing that you can imagine would be smart to do in this situation is bring the ark in. Let's just, let's bring the ark in here and we're going to consult the Lord. The high priest is going to take the stones of judgment, the Urim and the Thummim, and he's going to take them out and he's going to figure out what we're supposed to do here. He's going to discern the will of the Lord. Saul is about to, about to ask the Lord what I'm supposed to, what he's supposed to do, except before the priest gets done, he's in the middle, which doesn't take a long time. The, however these stones work, they only gave a yes or no answer. It's not like it's this long drawn out situation or, or, or protocol, but before the priest even finishes answering the question that Saul asked of him, which would have been something like, should we go or should we not? The, the clamor, the noise of the Philistines has increased. And so Saul interrupts the priest in the middle of his consultation. And he says, forget it. Put your hand back. Get, get away from there. Let's roll out. Saul silences the Lord here. Saul asked the question of the priest. And then Saul cut him off. Saul silences the Lord. 
And later on, when Saul asks the Lord another question, guess what, guess what he gets? He gets silence. He doesn't want to hear what God has to say, and the Lord knows this. He's just manipulating. And so, um, and that's when Saul is eventually going to end up before a witch, right? Because the Lord isn't speaking to him anymore. In spite of this, the Lord makes him victorious this day, and the land around Saul's hometown of Gibeah is, is clear to Philistines, and the Philistines shift the battle to another place called Beth-Avon. Now, there's a parallel in the last verse that we just read and the next verse we're going to read that Yahweh saved Israel that day, but in verse 24, we read that the men of Israel were distressed that day. Why why are they distressed? What's going on here? Israel was distressed. Now we find out why. You see, this is a hollow victory. We won. We moved the Philistines off the battlefield, but there's this sinking feeling. We've got a bad taste in our mouth. Something is not right. Something is not going well. So let's pick it up and see what's going on. Verse 24, the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand. He dipped it in the honeycomb and he put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Where have we heard that before? Achan was a troubler of the land. Jonathan is calling his father an Achan. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. So the people were very faint. We keep reading this. We keep hearing this. The people were very faint. The people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against Yahweh by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to Yahweh. This was the first altar that he built to Yahweh. Remember, he used Samuel's altar at Gilgal last week. This is the first one he builds, and that's the note here. Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? 
Saul is asking counsel of God, but he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. Why is God not speaking to us? What sin happened? For as Yahweh lives, who saves Israel? Though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to Yahweh God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. Which one of us has offended the Lord? So Jonathan was taken. The lot fell to Jonathan. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of a rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. And Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As Yahweh lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Oh, so much drama, and there's so much here going on. Well, we find out why everybody was distressed. Why is everybody despairing? It was because Saul had placed the people under an oath that day. He cursed everyone who ate before evening. He says, before I take vengeance on my enemies, nobody shall eat. Now, the purpose of this fast isn't really evident. But the perspective of Saul is evident. This is my army, not the Lord's. I can tell them what to do. I can treat them like my slaves. This is my army. I can tell them what to eat and what I not eat. The Lord didn't tell them not to eat. The Lord doesn't tell an army on the march not to eat. It's really foolish not to eat when you're about to go fight. It might sound super spiritual. Oh, we're going to fast and see if the Lord uh, delivers us and the victory will fill us with strength. Well, that may sound really spiritual, but it's really stupid. And it's not something that the Lord commanded. God is providing food for his people as they fight. It's right there on the trees. It's right there on the ground. And yet Saul is idiotically withholding God's blessings from God's people. Also note, when he says this, he says, these are my enemies. These are not the Lord's enemies. These are Saul's enemies. He's taken all of this so personally upon himself. Then this is all of a sudden, this is all about him, not about what the Lord is doing with and for Israel. Now, as it turns out, when Saul made this foolish oath and saying, nobody shall eat until the sun goes down and the man who eats will die, Jonathan didn't hear this foolish oath. Why? Where was Jonathan? Jonathan was across the ravine taking care of Philistines. That's why Jonathan didn't hear it. And when Jonathan was marching with his men, he sees honey literally on the ground. This is a land literally flowing with milk and honey. Honey is on the ground, dripping and standing in pools. It's a reminder of the promises of the land. 20 times in the Old Testament, this is called a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land full of pomegranate trees as well, but they're they're prevented from enjoying all of this. They can't enjoy any of it. One, because of the Philistines, and number two, because they have a tyrannical king who is withholding God's blessings from them. 
So when Jonathan eats, everyone gets really nervous. He says, oh no, did you just see what he did? Did you hear what his father said? Did you hear the oath? And Jonathan's response is surprising. He says, my father has troubled the land. This is the first time Jonathan criticizes and verbally disagrees with his dad. And at the end of the day, uh, when the men are close to fainting because they've been fighting all day and because they haven't eaten, uh, the, the place where their strength fails is Aijalon. Where have we read about Aijalon before? Where does that come up in the Bible? Well, it comes up back in Joshua. The Valley of Aijalon is where God caused the sun to stand still in the sky so that the Israelites could finish fighting their enemies and win the battle. They could finish the job because God allowed the sun to stand still in the middle of the sky. That day was lengthened back then in Joshua. On this day, the battle isn't lengthened. The battle is shortened because the army is exhausted and the enemy escapes. This is a reverse of the former uh, victory. Uh, this day is shortened and the enemy is not defeated here. The men are starving from marching and fighting all day. And you might think, oh, I could go a day without eating. Could you go to a day of hand-to-hand -hand combat without eating anything, of marching and running and doing everything you have to do? <laughs> certainly, certainly not. The men are absolutely starving. And so once the sun goes down and Saul's curse is up, they rush on the animals that they capture and they eat them with the blood, they don't drain the blood from the animal. They eat the animals raw, just like, just like pagans. The most important dietary restriction in God's law is that you do not eat the blood of the animal. And before you feel very convicted about eating a rare steak or a, or a, a prime rib, that's not blood on your plate, that's myoglobin. That's a protein that's in muscle. If you were eating blood, you would know that you were eating blood. You're not eating blood, even though it's red or pink and the meat's pink. Uh, you're not eating a bloody animal when you eat a rare steak. No, this is a pagan practice of eating an animal without cooking it, without draining the blood out of the animal. God forbade his people from doing this. And it even gets repeated in the New Testament in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, the new Gentile Christians are forbidden from eating the blood of the animal, just like the pagans do. But you see what's happening here is that the king has cut his people off from the blessings of the land. He has cut them off from the table of the Lord, the table that the Lord has spread them in the presence of their enemies. He's cut them off from that table. And so instead, they eat like pagans. They eat at the table of demons, the way that Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you, you cut them off from the Lord's table, you withhold the Lord's table, and they go to the table of demons. When denied the good stuff, they go after the forbidden stuff. They go after the profane food. And if we had lots of time, we would make all kinds of applications about where the church is today, morally and theologically, and why we're here having cut off people from God's table from the Lord's table and now leaving them hungry and starving. And what are they going to find? Well, they're going to eat whatever is available and they feed on profane food because we've cut them off from the Lord's table. And that's what's happened here in so many words. So when Saul confronts Jonathan about this, when he, when he finds out, you know, there's something going on, we found out that you ate, um, 
Saul acts like he's the priest. He sounds like Samuel from the previous chapter. Remember, Samuel comes to Saul and says, what have you done? Well, uh, Saul says the same thing to his son. He's full of self-importance, Saul is. Saul isn't submitting to the priest and he's not submitting to the prophet of the Lord, but he's acting like one himself, even calling for the death of Jonathan, something that Samuel didn't do. Samuel didn't call for the death of Saul when he disobeyed, but Saul judges Jonathan much more harshly for a much more innocent deed than Samuel judged Saul for. Saul wants to cast lots to see if he can get his way with killing Jonathan. He would rather kill his son than admit that he was wrong. God had denied Saul his dynasty, so I might as well just kill my son here, right? That makes sense. But the people rise up and they remind Saul of the goodness of Jonathan and the bravery of Jonathan, and they, they, they rescue Jonathan from the hand of Saul. This is really bad for Saul. This whole series of events is really super depressing. This amounts to a vote of no confidence for Saul's judgment and for Saul's rule as king. They realize that Jonathan is the one to be credited with leading the Lord's army, not Saul. Jonathan has been the faithful one here. And we might feel a little sense of tragedy, a little sad for Jonathan, that even with his faithfulness, he's not going to inherit his father's throne. But Jonathan himself realizes that the kingdom isn't mine to begin with. this, This kingdom isn't my dad's. It's not mine. I serve the Lord. And when it comes time to help and defend David, he's ready to do so because he's got this attitude. He's got this orientation toward God's people and toward God's kingdom. These are not my people. These are God's people. And I'm going to treat them Uh, like God's people, where Saul abuses God's army. Uh, The rest of this chapter follows a pattern that we see develop. We're going to wrap it up with just the last few verses here. When we read the book of Kings, we read about all the good things he did and all the bad things he did, and it's all kind of summarized. Every king is summarized, and we get a little passage like that here to wrap up this chapter. Verse 47, so Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Malkashua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merab, and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Now here we get a little summary of Saul's reign. Now, as you can tell, we're heading into a transition here. We're about to see the final fall of Saul, and we're going to see the transition to David's story. So here's our little summary of Saul and his reign. And despite his sins, Saul was a successful warrior. He had a number of military victories during his life. This section is helpful to flesh out the reign of Saul and shed light on the way that his kingdom grew. It's also interesting to note how simple a life Saul led when compared to David and when compared to Solomon. He has one wife. Saul has one wife. Uh, He doesn't build any shrines to other gods. He puts Israel on the road to complex government and bureaucracy with that last verse. Anytime he saw anybody that could serve him, he took him. 
He builds up a strong standing army. Um, But we've seen, once again, his rebellion against the Lord ending in no repentance. After this whole thing happens, what does Saul do? He just kind of slithers off the field and goes home. And the Philistines go their way. That's the second week in a row that we've seen the same conclusion. There's no change. There's no repentance. Failing to wait for Samuel was his first fall. Abusing the army of the Lord and threatening his son was his second fall. We're going to see his third fall next week. But, but we're being told two different stories here. Um, one about the failure and the slide and the decline of Saul. But then we get this paragraph about Saul fought all of these victories and fought all these battles and won all these victories. Which story is correct? Which assessment do we let take preeminence? Was Saul a mighty warrior king who did some pretty amazing things? Or was he, his, was he an abject moral failure? Well, what if we say both? Here at the end, we have this little paragraph. It's the judgment of history. We have a list of his achievements, his contributions, his successes. The external calculation of a man's life and work is all that we can observe here at the end. Saul made his mark. But the judgment of history is not the final verdict. Yahweh is not merely looking for political masterminds. He's not looking for popularity contest winners. Yahweh's looking for disciples. Covenant obedience is more important than vocational achievement. And so with these two assessments of Saul, we have both true assessments where we see that only one matters. He was historically, politically, vocationally a success. And he was a colossal covenant failure. He has victories that feel like defeats. Now, we have a king who has a defeat that is certainly a victory. Jesus is the greater Jonathan who goes down into the pit, comes out, and defeats the enemy. And as he does that, he emboldens us to come out of our graves, to come out of the pits, to come out of the holes, and join him in pursuit. And like Jonathan, and unlike Saul, our, our, our champion, our king, he doesn't withhold milk and honey. He doesn't withhold the blessings of the land as he does this, but he gives them all freely. And so meditate on these things and we'll continue the study next week. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for our King Jesus and we praise you for his victory over our enemies. We thank you for the way that you've shown over and over and over how faithful you are to your people. And so we ask you to uh, fill us with your spirit that our ways might be pleasing to you, that you might fight our victories with us and for us and that, that fight our battles with us and for us and give us the victory over those uh, that want to defile and destroy and bring everything to death and darkness. So guide us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.